What's up, y'all? In the words of the great Mason Betha, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. You are listening to the second of four installments of the Taking Up Space series for the Pop Politics Podcast, and I am your host, Dr. Monique Alicia Gamble. This production is made in association with the Institute for Politics, Policy, and History. It introduces to some and reintroduces to others a few of Washington, D.C.'s unsung Black women leaders. His first composition he wrote when he was 14, as I'm sure you're aware, it was entitled Soda Fountain Rag, and it was a ragtime uh, song. He played five or six different times with a different treatment on it, and people had no idea that it was the same song when he was 14, which was quite fun for him, and he, he was quite amused with himself that he was able to successfully achieve that. Father despised categorization. He felt that everybody was unique in their own special way. Jazz being a terminology, that a term that he, he didn't really like, and ergo the point of why um, one of the earlier bands was spelled J-A-S-S, because he really didn't like J-A-Z-Z. <laughs> and one of his first groups that was, before he made the transition of leaving Washington to go to New York, was the Washingtonians um, with Elmer Snowden and Sonny Greer. The community at that time was very uh, impressionable upon my father. What was taking place around you, the social environment and the climate of that, very definitely influenced his music early in life and further decades ahead. So check this out. Back in April, I spoke with Shalay Hainsworth, who is the creator and executive producer of this incredible multimedia project, Black Broadway on You. According to the website, the vision for this project was to create a, quote, groundbreaking multi-platform story and public history initiative to amplify, chronicle, preserve and enhance the undertold story, cultural legacy, local memories and voices of Washington, D.C.'s marginalized black community along the historic greater U Street corridor. If you know Washington, D.C., then you know the special place that U Street holds. To this day, U Street is a hub of D.C. history, D.C. nightlife, and culture. U Street is home to landmarks like the historic Lincoln Theater, Ben's Chili Bowl, and former pillars of my own U Street nightlife, Republic Garden and Bohemian Cavern, Bar None and Pure, JoJo's, and that sketchy McDonald's at like 14th and U. (laughs) But in the 1940s, it was a social and cultural hub and much more than that. U Street was a thriving Black community where Black folks could feel themselves and had every right to. My alma mater, that pause was for effect, Howard University, supplied Black doctors and lawyers and teachers. There were Black bankers and printers and repairmen. By default and maybe by grace, the U Street community was one for us and by us in a very real way. After speaking with Shalay, I think of her and Black Broad- and her Black Broadway on You project as kind of the keeper of that history. In fact, the memories that you've just heard are shared by Savoy Ellington and Edward K. Ellington, the daughter and son of the jazz and DC legend, Duke Ellington. It just so happened that the day that Shalay and I recorded our conversation, it was 
Duke's 122nd birthday. I thought about how when we call someone a legend or when you call somebody a great, this is what it means. It's 122 years after your birth and the streets are still talking about you. And so without any further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Shalee Hainsworth, executive producer, creator, cultural storyteller, the vision behind this amazing project, Black Broadway on You. Welcome, Shalee. Um, thank you, Monique, and I greatly appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to share, you know, my perspective on this wonderful D.C. cultural renaissance, you know, along the U Street Quarter, once known as the Black Broadway. I love it. Okay, so here we go. You ready for questions? You good? I'm ready. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, so first, let's talk about you. Tell me who you are. I know your titles executive producer, creator, storyteller, but what brought you to the work that you do? My professional, you know, livelihood, uh, that's what I do. I'm a producer, storyteller, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what basically uh, influences, you know, the work that you see on the Black Broadway on You Project's website, mm-hmm. you know, which I call a living digital history book. With the advent of technology, you know, like everyone, you know, we're in this, uh, fourth industrial revolution and so I felt that you know as a storyteller you know in my own you know other personal work and professional work that I'm doing that you know we need to evolve and utilize you know technology to create what I call cultural storytelling at the intersection of technology I thought you know hey why not create something uh, again you know this open source platform to tell our stories, you know, because Mm -hmm. you don't need permission, you know, you don't need anybody's approval. It's our history, our heritage, heritage, our culture, and, you know, and it provides us to tell the stories through our lenses, which oftentimes, you know, when you're working in the industry, you know, the media, TV, film, or whatever, you don't always have the ability to quite tell the story, you know, through your own right. personal lens because you have to right. adhere to, you know, the client standards or uh, wishes, you know, whatever their vision is for the end product if you're not the controller of it or, Absolutely. in this case, the creator of the executive producer. And so that's what fuels my work with the Black, Broad- Black Broadway on You project. So I love the opportunity to create really important work, especially important work about our communities that our community can actually access and digest. Without any filters, you know. Right, right. As you said, when you're at an academic institution, you know, so you have to adhere Mm -hmm. to the, you know, institutional guidelines, you know, adhere to the organizational culture. Right, right. That might not allow for the unfiltered open forms, even as it relates to storytelling, you know? Right. Speaking of storytelling, can you talk about a story that's had a profound impact on you, either one that's about you or one that was told to you, either through this project or in any other avenue of your life? Wow, that's a great question because I've always (laughs) been a great listener even from a child. The stories uh, 
that have really impacted me, I'm going to say really my grandmother, Lucille Dawson, mm-hmm. who was mm-hmm. my source of inf- inspiration for creating this project. But mm-hmm. what it gave me the opportunity was to go back and speak to her about her story more fully because, you know, I would hear bits and pieces of her story, but not specifically as related to her time along U Street. Mm-hmm. And so I would say the stories that she shared with me since, you know, 2013 and, you know, sadly my grandma, she passed in um, September of 2020 uh, and she was 100 years old. Oh, wow. What a blessing that was yeah. to have her for so long. It's such wow. a blessing and she yeah. still had her faculties, you know, even oh, man. her 100th birthday, she was still sharing stories. But <laughs> what it did was it opened us both up, you know, mm. to, to uh for me, it allowed me to do a deeper dive into her story, which was mm-hmm. ultimately not just the U Street story, but our family story. And mm-hmm. so just hearing her um, talk about, you know, the the pride and dignity that existed along the U Street quarter and what black men and women wore on U Street and how she would walk at the Lincoln Colonnade Ballroom, which was a ballroom underneath the Lincoln Theater. You know, in the 1940s and 50s, um, it was just so inspirational and just enlightening because she never shared that part of her journey. And she also worked as a part-time barber along the East Street Corridor. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I used to visit the barbershop. It was uh, Eaton's Barbershop, and it's a few doors down from Bohemian Caverns. But mm-hmm. originally, it was on the corner of... Uh, 14th and Z, uh, where the Bus Boys and Poets is. It was a diagonal on the corner across from there. And SNCC was on that corner as well, the D.C. chapter. So I would say those, some of the stories that my grandmother shared, you know, over the last, you know, since 2013 when I started this project, they just had a profound impact on me because not only did it prompt me to do a deeper dive into the the U Street history and what this Black Broadway phenomenon was all about and how important it was to our community, but it also prompted me to go deeper into my own family history. Going back to where my grandmother was born, you know, in Louisiana and how she came to D.C. in, you know, the early 1930s and who she lived with and where she lived. So I have all of the addresses of where she lived and getting an understanding of why African Americans were moving around so much. It was because they, they couldn't purchase property, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, there was redlining going on, they couldn't get loans. There was a myriad of of roadblocks for them, you know, that and so just my grandmother's story. I would say, you know, to anyone that's listening, that, you know, to sit down with elders, you know, yep. and their families and document, you know like you're doing, do a, a podcast, something, you know, <laughs> to get the um, authentic story, you know, of what was taking place in whatever community you're from or what was taking place in your family, you know, because I think that's a real significant part and it allows us to know really who we are. Grandmother, she took me to the location where her shop was on North Capitol, was that uh, just a, a block down from the intersection of North Capitol and Florida Avenue. Mm-hmm. And then I mm-hmm. interviewed another e- elder um, 
Daryl Smith in her dance studio was a few doors down from my grandfather's electronic shop, and she remembered them. I think one of the best things about interviewing Chalet for this podcast episode is her intimate knowledge of Washington, D.C. I was just delighted by the idea, like, <laughs> delighted, sincerely. My heart lifted uh, by the idea of her grandmother being a barber on U Street and being a barber near the office, uh, near the SNCC office. This just reminds me of the point that I was making earlier about U Street being a hub of Black Washington, D.C.'s social, political, cultural identity. Um, Think about being a Black woman barber, you know, in the 1960s, and then being just downwind of um, the student student nonviolent coordinating committee just down the street, founded by Ella Baker, you know, led by the very fiery Stokely Carmichael. There's just something really special and really magical about the kind of progressivism, the kind of revolutionary spirit and culture and energy that existed in Washington, D.C. at that time. I'm going to go back to this this term, uh, cultural storytelling. Uh, I love that you mentioned it again because it was something that popped out to me when I was Um, researching you and the project. So talk to me about cultural storytelling as it relates to Black D.C. Here's our favorite question so far. What does D.C. smell like to you? What did it smell like to you? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? Well, (laughs) you know, like everything, you know, there's uh, multiple iterations in our life cycle and in our cities, you know, and so growing up, D.C. smelled like, you know, like barbecue. Yeah. Uh, and today, the smell, it's, it's changed. You know, mm-hmm. I can't say it's, you know, what I remember, you know, and I understand that it's about evolving and we're at a different, you know, iteration in the city. Mm-hmm. But uh, growing up, that's what I remember. A lot of homemade meals, pound cakes, uh, <laughs> you know, just... You know, which was also uh, uh, just a, a way to connect. It was a connection, yeah. you know, to yeah. food. What did it sound like back then? Uh, the sound back then. So when I was younger, you know, the jazz was uh, scene was more vibrant, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really grew up in that world, too, in the uh, black arts and theater world. So it was very theatrical. You know, uh, recently I was talking about a colleague who's working on a book and it's about uh, part of it's going to be highlighting the D.C. black repertory. And I just it just took me back to those plays that I used to go to when they were located on New Hampshire and Georgia Avenue. And to me, it was Broadway. I mean, it was phenomenal. You know, there were a lot of uh, jazz clubs, even in Adams Morgan back then. I remember going Mm -hmm. to with my mom as a young child. And uh, so jazz was prominent. And of course, the early side of Chuck Brown, you know, and go-go music, you know. I remember Mm -hmm. songs like uh, We the People, uh, which is one of my favorite Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers songs back when I was younger. And now, you know, (laughs) the sound shape is deep because I'm reading about, you know, these sound ordinances and how the sound has to be at this decibel at 10 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, I was at the D.C. Jazz Festival on the waterfront, 
and uh, this Robert Glasper was just getting into it, and they just faded the music down. Lights went up ten o'clock. I said, "Wow, wow, wow!" <laughs> yes. Again, one of my favorite parts about this interview with Chalet is just her deep command and familiarity with a certain kind of Washington, D.C. And to be honest, it's a, it's a D.C. that doesn't really exist anymore in the same way. So I've lived in the D.C. area now for about 15 years. I moved here in 2005 to go to grad school at Howard. And for most of the time that I've lived here, I have worked in the city. And so I've definitely been able to see the transformation of this city. It's been just fascinating to watch. I mentioned earlier that because of her work on the Black Broadway on U Street project, I think of Chalet as sort of a keeper of a very unique and particular and important DC history. In this next segment, you'll get to see a little bit more of that. She's gonna rattle off names and places and artists on the tip of her tongue because she knows this city like that. And this moment really resonated with me when we had our conversation because I'm thinking that, you know, in the relatively short amount of time that I've lived here, I know these places. They are familiar to me. I've been to more than a few of them on more than a few occasions. And and they've been replaced or shuttered altogether. And it's just a reminder that, you know, life moves on. And if there is no one there to preserve that history, it gets lost. DC has a very rich tradition of black cultural excellence. In 2021, it's very easy to see how that can get lost. You know, mm -hmm. the twins gone and, um, and then of course, Bohemian Caverns was shut about five or six years ago now. Uh, and wow. so we're just losing a, a lot of places. You know, it was a lot of, little places that, yeah. you know, specifically along the U Street corridor that I miss, uh, Cafe Nima. <laughs> I mean, just a lot of nice little spots, you know, that we would just pop in and out of, you know. Nima's been um, gone for a while now, too, hasn't it? It's been gone, gone for like maybe long. a decade. Yeah, because <laughs> I miss some of my awesome groups. I used to check out like the Young Lions. And, and then, of course, you know, at Bohemian Caverns, you know, shout out to Omrah Brown. He was bringing just some incredible artists into the city. Like we talked about Robert Glasper. I remember mm -hmm. he was the first one that, that really exposed me to Robert Glasper. And it was the Robert Glasper experiment. And this mm -hmm. was in the early 2000s. But it was just that the night was so memorable because of the folks in the building, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. In fact, one of our good brothers just passed away, Bill Brower, you know, he was a serious impresario for jazz here in mm -hmm. D.C. He was there, Charlie Fishman, I mean, just all the players, Bernard Gray, who passed away last year, just all the folks that were heavy into the D.C. jazz scene were in that Bohemian Caverns that night and was just like, standing room only. It was amazing. I can only imagine. Electric. Yeah. You know, Utopia was another uh, popular place on uh, U Street. It was on U between 14th and 15th. And you would go in there and hear folks like Wayne Willett. And, uh, just, you know, his trio, it could be two o'clock in the morning. You would pop in there and he's playing and you could get something <laughs> to eat. And it was just so 
bohemian, you know, and those spaces, sadly, they don't exist anymore, yeah. you know, or yeah. the spaces exist, but, you know, they're not catering to, you know, that audience, you know, the black audience. You know? mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that the other reason, too, is because the sound of black radio has changed as well. But thank goodness WPFW, jazz, blues, I mean, they got you covered, house, music, <laughs> you know. I mean, WPFW, I, I think I'm very thankful for them because they yeah. still, when I listen to them, it's like, oh, okay, I am still in D.C. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully, you know, this next iteration won't stray from too far, you know, from just sort of reimagining that soundscape that I thought added a lot of value to the cultural scene here in D.C. Why hasn't there been, like, a documentary on this period, on this particular city, this particular street? Pearl Bailey performing, uh, Duke Ellington, Langston Hughes, Billie Holiday. How come those stories aren't bigger? Well, I think, you know, what happens is, you know, when you look at the industry, in fact, there was a gentleman that did a documentary some years ago. It was called Duke's Washington, I think was the name of it. Mm-hmm. And then there was a documentary done um, in the late 80s about 7th Street because there was a very, that was a vibrant quarter as well. You do a deep dive into Langston Hughes's work and what really influenced his work, you know, as an author and a poet, it was 7th Street, you know, when he lived along the U Street Quarter, the Striver District and LaDroy Le- Park. It was the 7th Street cultural scene because it was a different world than what you got on U Street. You know, I recently had the great fortune to sit down with uh, Andrew Young and he was talking about how today the driving force is cash and class. So Hmm. I think that that still hasn't changed really. So films have been made, but sadly, you know, it's about who's being supported to tell stories and who's getting funded. And because, you know, it's such a marketing scenario, you know, uh, because people want to recoup, you know, a return on their investment in film projects. There's a limited amount, especially when you look at African-American filmmakers who have gotten an opportunity to tell our story via, you know, the small screen or large screen. And, And so, like, you know, I've applied for tons of funding to, to underwrite a documentary because I have the content and uh, if I'm yeah. applying locally it's you know it's not enough or I haven't been awarded but if I'm uh, applying to some of the larger documentary funds they see this story as too local it's not a local story that many of the figures reference and tied to the Harlem Renaissance they actually were living along, you know, the U Street, Shaw Quarter, 7th Street, with, you know, LaJoy Park, this whole, you know, area. They never were in Harlem in New York. They were here, which is why, you know, many folks, especially D.C., you know, native Washingtonians, we often refer to it as the D.C. Renaissance. So I think it's about politics, you know, because the at the end of the day, filmmaking, it's a business. You know, it's still yeah. the business yeah. of filmmaking, the business of entertainment, and it's about that marketing. Sadly, you know, we're still in this whole, you know, paradigm where uh, uh, people still, in order for you to be successful, you have to be significant. You know, that was my goal for the 
launching the project was that it sure. served as just a destination, you know, because people were writing articles and several people had written books about the Greater U Street Quarter, uh, but it wasn't like a centralized destination, you know, where you mm-hmm. could hear the voices. How else did you track down this history? I thought one of the coolest parts of the project on the on the website is the interactive map. I love, you know, being able to, to click on these individual sites and find what was happening during that time. It, it's another kind of immersive aspect of the project, which is really, yeah. really cool. How were you able to get so many of these little pieces? Just connecting the dots, you know. Okay. Uh, some mm-hmm. of the, when I interview some of the elders and look at articles and they might mention a, a certain place or looking at photos. And I'm like, where is this photo? Uh, I mean, I, like this one photo I have, it's amazing. And I wish I could get the film. There's a, a woman on this platform with this big like Panavision film camera filming the community inside of this venue. And I just could never figure out where it was. And so mm-hmm. when I interviewed Daryl Smith, You know, oftentimes I would bring pictures on my laptop or, you know, the personal pictures that I have myself that people have donated to me, you know, or I got from my grandmother. You know, once people realized I was doing this project, a lot of my family and friends and colleagues have given me some of their uh, family archival photos from U Street. But Mm -hmm. this photo in particular, I had no idea where this black woman cinematographer was dressed in her beautiful dress, all these beautiful black people and women in this venue. It turns out it was the Y on uh, 7th and Rhode Island Avenue. She knew immediately. So so that's how I've been able to sort of connect the dots and some of the Mm -hmm. spaces. Mm -hmm. It's all over the place, you know, uh, in terms of this, our history and it's buried, you know, not just for this project, um, but just in general, white folks, they they have embraced, you know, the power of documenting history, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And so along the way, they have been documenting our history or capturing our culture and images. You know, like one picture in particular that I uh, found uh, is the picture of Ella Fitzgerald at Tower Theater in 1935. It was a guy out of North Carolina. He was a sports uh photographer you know and I wow. guess somebody told him check out Howard Theater those black <laughs> folks and in 1935 that's what he did wow it's a picture of Ella Fitzgerald performing at the Howard Theater with um uh Chick uh Webb you know Chick Webb the great drummer who was known you know for uh from the Savoy Ballroom in you know mm-hmm. in, in New York but he's actually out of Baltimore. He was born in Baltimore, but they happened to be to be performing at the Howard Theater in 1935. And this photographer, I guess somebody told him about it. He captured that picture. So that's so, so that's cool. what it's about, you know, just doing hours and hours of research. And like I said, I continue to do, you know, when my time permits, you know, to do research, you know, because this is still, you know, my passion project and. Yeah, I'm bootstrapping the the website and the work unless <laughs> I get, you know, donations or a grant, but I, I think it's worth it. And people are embracing it real time, you know, because I know, you know, the work has served as a source of inspiration, you know, oh, for yeah. not just the D.C. community, but the black community and just 
other, you know, digital, uh, you know, that whole digital humanities genre. Because I, I hear from people all over the globe about the website. So, mm-hmm. you know, and again, it's about expanding uh, the black narrative, you know, because my approach to this work is about celebrating, you know, because, you know, I want us to understand that out of obstacles and segregation, Jim Crow, yeah. trauma, or whatever, progress is being made, you know, Absolutely. and we've made great strides, because I think we, we need to balance that narrative, because I think we, you know, sometimes that trauma can just overwhelm us, you know, yep. And, yep. And, and I think, you know, which is why, you know, many people feel like, you know, we're going backwards, or, you know, just hearing some of the stats, you know, as it relates to home ownership for African Americans, they're saying is, you know, is worse than it was in 1960s. You know, and it's like, you know, so that that's that's my approach. You know, and that's where I am, and I try to center, you know, this work and most of my storytelling because I think we need a balance. It's like yes. it's about uplifting and empowering us. You know, and that's what the whole culture storytelling is about. You know, in my world, as you were putting the project together. What caught you by surprise? The thing that uh, I felt that needed to be amplified was the the, the achievements beyond the music and entertainment. You know, mm, you talk okay. about the uh, specifically business, you know, that it was a prominent uh, business quarter, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, was, you know, not necessarily, I, I hate to say rivals, because I don't like to compare, you know, but it, I would say it mirrored what was happening in, uh, you know, in Black Wall Street, you know, the Black mm. community in okay. the early okay. 1920s in Oklahoma. Sure. Uh, we, the same thing was happening here on U Street, you know, and it was because we had to create our own ecosystem, you know, our own ecosystem to survive. Yeah. You know? So as we talked about earlier, how, you know, the community was anchored by Howard University and all the great you know, black achievers and path breakers and trailblazers who were graduating for Howard, they were staying in D.C. The community was anchored by Howard. So you had a lot of top black scholars and that whole incubator again. And so that was something that just blew me away, you know, yeah. like knowing that Zora Neale Hurston had attended Howard. I had no mm-hmm. idea, you know, that she attended Howard University and actually lived along the U Street Quarter, lived at the the Y at 7th in Florida, was actually an intern. Uh, so was Langston Hughes of Carter G. Woodson's, you know. Wow. I worked with him, you know, when he was putting together, you know, his early uh Negro Weekly publications, you know, worked in his office, home office, you know, right there at 1538 9th Street. And, you know, and just the, um, another space that was just so prominent and I've really done a deep dive into their archives is the Murray Printing Company. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they were publishing black books, black authors' books, you know. And so we didn't need mainstream America to publish books. Uh, they were black doctors, you know, they were uh, lots of black clubs, you know, all types of clubs, the bridge clubs, social clubs, uh, the justice club, you know, all types of the social clubs and activities that we were engaged and serious about, you know, and that was just tremendous to me. 
And then the other piece was just seeing how uh, in the a lot of the research materials, I was just amazed at how the cities were so connected, the black communities, you know, how mm-hmm. the D.C. community was connected to Baltimore and Philly and, you know, Chicago and how mm-hmm. they were working together and coming together to advance, you know, the the you know, the social and civil cause of black America without technology, you know. Right, I, I right. I found that so impressive. And then again, that whole ecosystem that we created, because a lot of the elders, you know, even though, you know, D.C. was extremely segregated and Jim Crow was had a, a serious impact on D.C., you know, because people forget it's a sleepy southern town you know we're in the mm-hmm. south you know we're right right you know, mm-hmm. not far from the mason dixon line but you know and so uh the fact that they didn't really feel the wrath of jim crow because they had everything they needed you know they had right. grocery stores they had black-owned department stores you know they had um you know pharmacists a doctor a lawyer black newspapers you know because a lot of even the uh black newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier and, you know, and some of the other popular black newspapers, you know, in the 30s and 40s, they had a DC bureau, you know, so it was all interconnected. And uh, I think that was just so powerful, you know, and, and something that when I talk about the hidden history, uh, that's what really stood out about the movement and what was happening and what which really made, you know, U Street an important gateway and a mecca for you yeah. know, black America. It's, it's deep, but yeah. you know, and thank God for technology. I have to tell people all the time, I'm not 24-7 on the Black Broadway or You Project because it's not my livelihood. It's my passion project because mm-hmm. I feel there's a need and a void for it. You know, and, and as you mentioned briefly, this whole digital humanities, that's a whole nother podcast because that's seriously, that's something we really got to be mindful of because the universities, particularly the white, you know, universities have, have the resources, are getting the foundation dollars to, you know, beef up their digital humanity programs, humanities programs and their mm-hmm. archives. And a lot of our material is housed in those archives. You know? Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you, I've, the, the universities, like I said, the picture of Ella Fitzgerald, that was the University of North Carolina, but I found a lot of history specifically for U Street and uh, on major white university sites, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you're not at that school or have access to, you know, some of those um you know, digital archive systems, we don't know about that history, you know, they have the upper hand, you know, and they have the access to the content, which is our story, you know, so it's deep, it's interesting, a lot happening, and, and, you know, so that's why I I still stay the course, you know, hopefully we can get out of that cycle of doing a lot with a little, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. The work is remarkable. The website is remarkable. I enjoyed reading it and listening to the stories, uh, clicking through the map. It was so cool. Uh, and I'm, I'm just yep. I'm so glad that this is your passion and that you put in the work yep. um, to create this wonderful destination. a lot of content that I yeah, want to get on that website. It's a whole bunch of interviews and things, my vision 
that, Mm -hmm. you know, when I started this whole immersive storytelling, culture storytelling project, I thought I would have achieved by now, but it's okay. Because, you know, (laughs) the beauty of historical content is that it's evergreen. For sure it is. Shalea is absolutely right. Historical content is evergreen. So there's always time to uncover more of this amazing history. You know, I think back to what I said earlier about Duke Ellington being a legend and what it means to be 122 years out from the day you were born and to still have people talking about you. Or to think about... Um, Washington, D.C. and this U Street corridor in the 1930s and 1940s and how significant it was, how significant it was for so many people who we now regard as landmarks of American cultural history. And they got their starts right here in Washington, D.C. You know, and here we are in 2021 still talking about it. That Chalet's Passion Project, the Black Broadway on You, um, interactive, immersive um, digital project was launched in 2014, but here we are seven years later still having a conversation about it. It's so important for us to be able to preserve this history and to be able to share it. And so my hat's off to those creators who have jumped out there, you know, in many cases with their own money, because Shalay mentioned that too, about the, the dearth of funding for these kinds of projects. And so people have stepped out there with their own passion, with their own funding, with their own interest to bring us stories that are uniquely ours. And thank you for, for keeping our history alive in this way. So you can keep up with the Black Broadway on You project uh, by following the Instagram page, which is Black Broadway on You. The Facebook page is also Black Broadway on You, and the website, which has all of this great knowledge and all of these tools and all this immersive content that I talked to Shalea about today. Um, and that's BlackBroadwayOnYou.com. So check out all of them and sort of get into these stories and these memories. They are actually are really really cool. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for sticking with me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. Um, Episode three of this four part series is scheduled for August. Sit tight for that one. And in the meantime, y'all be good to yourselves. Take care of yourselves and we'll do this again soon.